Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court here in Washington and joining me from New York is co-host Natalie Rodriguez. How are you today, Natalie? Hey, Jimmy. Pretty good. Pretty good. It's been another off week for the court, but also, again, another slightly busy week for the court. So we're going to we're going to dig into that later. Um, we're also going to do a bit of a preview of like what's kind of on their docket, what might they take up. So I'm excited. I'm excited for this episode. That's right. Yeah. We always talk about the cases that are pending or um, cases where there's oral arguments right around the corner. But there are some been some really interesting petitions filed lately that have been piling up on the justice's desk that we could potentially in the weeks or months to come see some action. in. so we want to just kind of give you guys the lay of the land for what might be coming up the pike. But in the meantime, let's let's catch up with the last week at the Supreme Court. So I, I would say that uh, let's just start with yesterday, right? This is the thing <laughs> that we expected, we were long expecting would happen, finally happened. The Biden administration has dropped the ACA challenge. Not a huge surprise, right? No, I don't think so. <laughs> but yeah. it's it's notable nevertheless. So um, just a little bit of background here. Obviously, we, we've talked about it on the show a million times, but the Trump administration um, it was backing a challenge from Republican states urging the Supreme Court to essentially throw out the Affordable Care Act. The argument was that after Congress zeroed out the tax penalty for the individual mandate, the mandate became unconstitutional. And since the mandate was unconstitutional, the rest of the law was unconstitutional um, You know, because of how essential the mandate was. That was at least the argument that the Trump administration had taken before the Supreme Court. Now, yesterday, in a letter to the Supreme Court, the Biden administration changed course. So what did the letter say? So the letter said that the Biden administration, unsurprisingly, totally disagrees with the Trump administration on two points. Um, The first is that it doesn't think that the mandate is unconstitutional. It thinks the mandate is constitutional, even with the um, zeroing out of the tax penalty there. But more to the point, if the Supreme Court disagrees and says, you know what, after Congress did this, the mandate is now unconstitutional, it can't stand. Well, the Biden administration is now taking the position that the rest of the Affordable Care Act should still survive even if the court strikes down the mandate. That's kind of the big change here is that on paper, the Biden administration is no longer taking the position in the Supreme Court that the justices should dismantle President Obama and vice former Vice President Joe Biden, now current President Biden. Their signature uh, legislative achievement should be kind of thrown in the dustbin. So that is the big deal. I think that's pretty significant to have the DOJ's heft behind that argument, you know, especially given just how the court has leaned towards carve outs rather than complete tossing of of certain controversial policies in the past. Um, of course, though, this does not mean the case goes away. Um, you know, the 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 Trump administration had been backing the case, but the case had uh, been brought originally by a bunch of uh, Republican-led states. That's right. So the case is currently awaiting a decision from the Supreme Court. It was argued in November um, and at oral arguments. Uh, I just want to remind everyone that the justices were pretty skeptical of the Trump administration and the Republican states' arguments that the whole ACA should be thrown in the trash can. They said, you know, that's kind of a job for Congress. That's not really our job. That was at least what some of the median votes on the court were uh, suggesting at oral arguments. So pretty much everyone is expecting this to be 
um, a decision that upholds the ACA. But, you know, it, it could potentially change the justices' calculus for maybe how they approach the constitutionality of the individual mandate on its face. But like I said earlier, it, it's mostly, you know, kind of a symbolic message that it's no longer the position of the Biden administration, but that the ACA should fall. But um, again, something that we were expecting happened, uh, happened. <laughs> Which brings us to Friday night, though. Were we really expecting a Friday night 11 o'clock decision? Uh. I don't know that I was. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and in fact, I didn't really appreciate uh, looking down to discover that there was some major Supreme Court news. Um, I think, I don't, you know, I can't ex- remember exactly when it was, but it was, um, you would be justified in, in being in bed. I think yeah, I, was... I might have like been snoozing already, yeah. to be honest. <laughs> in any event, in the wee hours of Friday, uh, the Supreme Court lifted California's ban on indoor church services in a six to three ruling. Uh, the court, however, it kept a 25% capacity limit um, on indoor church services and um, it refused to dismantle the prohibition on indoor singing and chanting. But this was a pretty big uh, religious liberty victory for uh, churches who were challenging these uh, COVID restrictions in the state of California. So the lineup, uh, my understanding, included uh, Roberts, who has been known to kind of go back and forth on on some of these these cases, but the thread that seems to tie him, his position is usually deference. Right. So he actually explained his thinking in a very short uh, concurrence. Uh, the order was in itself was unsigned because it's an order. It's not, you know, a, an opinion in an argued case. So the court handed down the order, and then a, a few of the justices wrote opinions kind of explaining their thinking. Um, so Chief Justice Roberts writes an opinion, and he says, you know, I know that I've been championing this idea of deference to state regulators, but he says, you know, deference, though broad, it has its limits. And the the particular point that he pushed back against was the idea that California did not tolerate any people attending indoor church services. The idea, he says, that you know zero people is the safe limit for indoor, indoor church gatherings is not really one that the, the state backed up with any evidence. And so that's why he took the position of kind of lifting this total prohibition in certain um, high COVID areas on indoor church services. Now, you asked about the lineup. So, um, the three just the three liberal justices on the court. Obviously, they dissented in the case. Justice Elena Kagan she wrote kind of a a fiery dissent, which she basically accused her colleagues of being like amateur epidemiologists and you know uh, second guessing the scientists in that state and, and their various health restrictions. But it was interesting that um, there were three conservative justices that also didn't get what they want. Um, so they thought that the court should have gone a step further and that they. Um, that the court should have also allowed singing and chanting, because I mentioned in the beginning that the court did not lift California's restriction on singing and chanting in churches. Now, enter Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who writes her first opinion. And I big milestone. Even, yeah, a big milestone, but I don't even know if you can call it like a full opinion. It was like a paragraph long <laughs> um, in this case, but she basically explains Can we hope thi- that she'll be a concise opinion writer? I think that's the only way to take this, right? <laughs> Is I, that, I, I hope that that's the case. So Justice Barrett writes a short um, paragraph in which she explains why she, you know, for the moment disagrees with the three conservative justices, Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch, and why she thought 
that the court was right to uphold California's um, restriction on singing and chanting, saying that the church didn't bear its burden of showing why California should allow singing and chanting. But then she says, of course, if a chorister can sing in a Hollywood studio but not in her church, California's regulations cannot be viewed as neutral. So this is kind of a for the time being, she's willing to um, side with California on this one uh, until the church can maybe present some further ev- evidence. So uh, some interesting late night activity on Friday in another COVID case. Just wanted to give everyone an update there. So that brings us to kind of our main segment for today, which is looking ahead at what might come from the courts in terms of decisions on pending petitions. Um, so... The list of pending petitions that is like being seriously considered by the court is fairly significant. Although once you start taking into account cases that are likely to be mooted by the administration and other uh, concerns, like a, a big class action case I was watching, but that looks like it's headed to a settlement, um, it, it gets trimmed down uh, a bit. More manageable. Um, more manageable, more manageable. And, and so we're not going to go through all of them, but we're going to spotlight a couple that I think, Jimmy, you and I are, are have both been kind of keeping our eyes on. Um, and for me, one of them that I've been watching is uh, this case involving the Boston Marathon bomber. So the First Circuit has actually vacated his death sentence um, and ordered a new sentencing trial over possible juror bias. Um, the lower court judge, the, the circuit set, fell short in, pro- in properly questioning jurors about their potential bias um, because it was such a well-known case, right? And so the DOJ's actually asked to reinstate the death penalty in this case um, and basically saying that the circuit court made up and used this like new and flexible voir dire rule uh, that the judge should have questioned each juror about publicity. Obviously, this is a bit of an extreme case, you know, the Boston Marathon bomber made national and frankly international news. Um, but I, I think, you know, the decision, if, if the court were to take this up, I, I think the decision could have ramifications for other high profile cases. Like, is this a new test? Is this a new uh, parameter that has to be considered when you're picking out jurors? Um, there's also a question uh, raised by the petition about whether the district court erred by like omitting um, some evidence during the penalty phase of the trial, but I, I think really it's that first question uh, that that could be potentially interesting to watch. That really is so fascinating with some of these high-profile cases, like you know, for instance, maybe the DC sniper case that came up to the Supreme Court recently, which involved a totally different legal issue. But this idea about you know uh, the prevalence of the media reporting or surrounding some of these cases potentially influencing the jurors and what you know, judges and courts should do about it. Yeah, I could see that being a, a pretty big deal. Feels like it might open up a, a new doorway to to further kind of putting parameters, especially when you also start t- taking into consideration online media and social media and just what people, you know, people are getting from various outlets uh, and how that might bias the juror pool. Now, so this case is pending before the court, right? The petition's pending the before petition, the court. Yeah. yeah, so we'll see. we'll see what happens. So, Jimmy, what's one that you're watching? So I'm watching a case called Texas versus California uh, that's been pending at the court for a little while. Not to be confused with California versus Texas, the uh, Affordable Care Act case. Easy confusion. Yes. Yeah. The the two states just don't seem to be getting along, the two neighbors. In any event, um, this one is an original action that was filed last year, that Texas filed last year against the state of California over its travel ban um, 
towards Texas. So uh, for listeners who may be unaware, uh, in 2017, California added Texas to its travel ban list. So California has a list um, of states that it prohibits um, state-sponsored travel to because of their records on LGBTQ rights. Um, so they're not going to funnel money by sending people that are their like state employees to right. Texas because of their stance. Okay, got e- exactly. It. Or it could be like a student convention or something or other that just happens to come from the California Treasury. Um, and the California did this; it added Texas to its travel ban list as a result of a law that Texas passed in 2017. We basically said that we're not going to go after foster care and adoption agencies that take stances that conform with their religious views. So California read that law to mean we're going to allow foster care and adoption agencies to discriminate against, um, you know, gay, lesbian and transgender couples, essentially. A case we've seen before the Supreme Court before. Right. It's currently pending before the Supreme Court. This whole issue of, you know, LGBTQ discrimination in the adoption and foster care um, world. Um, but this one, kind of unrelated, it involves this separate issue about federalism, whether um, California actually has the constitutional right to maintain this list of travel ban states um, because of policy disagreements it has. And Texas essentially argues that it is a um, violation of the uh, Constitution's Privileges and Immunities Clause and the Interstate Commerce Clause and Guarantee of Equal Protection. And interestingly enough, um, you know, the Trump administration in the waning days um, before Biden took office actually filed a brief backing Texas's case here, um, saying that the, you know, this California is overstepping the line when it's essentially en- enacting economic sanctions against its its fellow states. Um, and that's, you know, obviously a number of other GOP states are, are supporting that position as well. You know, whether the current DOJ maintains that position or whether the Supreme Court you know, takes up the case, it remains to be seen. But I think a really fascinating discussion of just like the interplay between the two states and and what's permitted under the Constitution when it comes to these types of economic sanctions. I'd like to see this one taken up and frankly see if the justices can broker some sort of peace between the two states. (laughs) Yeah. That might be asking too much. Yeah, I think it's asking a little too much. In fact, there's been a lot of (laughs) Um, good reporting lately on just the the sharpening of the elbows and the balkanization between you know Republican attorneys general and Democratic attorneys general. Like so many facets of American life, have have kind of succumbed to even further polarization. But anyway, enough about that. Do you have another case that you've been watching, Allie? So I do, I do. I have one um, that I have to admit to everyone when I first skimmed the case. And I saw the words Antiquities Act of 1906 and Ocean Areas Beyond United States Sovereignty. My brain immediately went to like, "Ooh, this is about lost treasure. <laughs> tell me. Tell me it's about lost treasure. No, my brain was wrong. But it's actually still a really interesting and important case. So the case is actually about how Presidents Bush and Obama both used the Antiquities Act to designate huge and I mean like huge swaths of the ocean as like national monuments and and they did this in the name of you know environmental concerns uh you know to protect deep sea coral and endangered marine life but these designations also cut off commercial crabbing and fishing enterprises um so a bunch of fishing groups um namely a group of lobster fishermen who work off of cape cod where they uh where 
Obama had designated like a 5,000 square mile monument in 2016. They've been seeking to overturn this. Um, obviously, this impacts their livelihood, how they make their living. Um, so there's this question of, so the way in which they're kind of attacking the national monument designation is uh in part with this question of like what is land you know does it include submerged lands and waters associated with them which i don't know about you but that just drew me back immediately to last term's case where like the case involving hawaii and the clean water oh, act yeah. does it does it count groundwater so i feel <laughs> like the supreme court justices are going to be coming you know if they were to take up this case, they would be furthering their education on, you know, water and what is land and what is water and, you know, the boundaries. Gonna, they would for sure have a field day with that one. Right? Um, <laughs> assuming they assuming they take it up. Um, but this one, I guess it's been distributed a couple different uh, conferences, right? So they at least seem to be interested in it. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's, I think it's interesting case with interesting open-ended questions and um you know we've talked a lot about how the change to the biden administration has mooted a bunch of cases but this seems to be one where the change in administration actually might make this more salient um the fishing groups uh filed a brief in january because on you know one of uh, biden's kind of day one executive orders he basically promised to restore and expand national monuments and the fishing groups are like hey this is like an issue we need to clear up before he you know potentially ah. names more national monuments in the water so you know it's uh i think it's an interesting case that has some like you know really real world real time implications right now um you know th- there's also a question and and you know should this case be taken up maybe we can talk about it further about like whether the the president should have used like the National Marine Sanctuaries Act, which is like a tougher procedure to get through. Um, so maybe we can dig into that later if if the ju- if the justices do decide to take up this case. Okay, so I want to round it out by talking about um, a another petition that's been actually a- pending before the Supreme Court since September, and this one involves the very controversial issue of abortion rights at the Supreme Court. Um, the case is called Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, um, and it's a pretty d- big deal that could essentially redefine how the Supreme Court's uh, abortion jurisprudence actually works. Um, so it involves a 2018 Mississippi law that sought to ban abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. This is a uh, a point that's you know two to three months earlier than a fetus becomes viable, actually. And so that law was challenged in court by the last remaining abortion clinic in Mississippi, Jackson Women's Health Organization, and was struck down by the Fifth Circuit, which was kind of no surprise there because you know the Supreme Court's binding abortion precedent is that bans on total bans on abortion before viability um, are unconstitutional. That was recognized in uh, the landmark uh, decision Roe versus Wade and reaffirmed later in, in the Casey decision. Now. This case has been pending since September with no actual action from the court, like I said. And, you know, if four justices vote to grant certiorari, um, another word for review, it could really give the Supreme Court the chance to reexamine its abortion precedents from basically top to bottom and clear the way for more all-out bans on abortion prior to a fetus's viability. And it was interesting to read the way that 
um, the state of Mississippi had framed its petition to the court where it asked the court to essentially answer the question whether all pre-viability bans on elective abortions are unconstitutional. But there was a second one that they they they, they posed that I thought was even more interesting, um, and that involved the question of whether uh, the whether courts, when examining some of these all-out bans on abortion, should approach the cases from the Casey um, perspective, where you're asking whether it's an undue burden on a woman's ability to get the procedure, or whether they should use Hellerstadt, which is the recent um, Supreme Court decision. Uh, involving the admitting privileges law. Now, this was uh, last term, the Supreme Court actually struck down Louisiana's um, admitting privileges law for abortion providers. It required, you know, abortion doctors to have admitting privileges at a local hospital. But what was really interesting was that even though the court struck down that admitting privileges law, Chief Justice Roberts explained his thinking in a concurrence saying that you know, the court has to balance um, essentially the benefits and burdens of these abortion restrictions. Now, it didn't make a lot of news at the time, but what you're seeing playing out in real time right now in this case is that the state of Mississippi is essentially using Chief Justice Roberts's Hellerstedt opinion to defend its um, 15-week abortion ban. Um, so what a lot of reproductive rights activists had kind of sounded the rung the alarm bells over at the time is now um, becoming a reality, which is that, you know, this new essentially balancing test that Roberts had announced could actually redound to the benefit of Republican states seeking to enact more restrictions on abortion. So that's one that I've been watching. And, you know, we'll see whether the whether the court is interested in revisiting this controversial subject so soon after um, the Hellerstedt decision, but one to watch. Yeah, definitely. I, I feel like that's the big question, right? Do they do they want to take up something so closely related right again, potentially next term, or do they want to let it sit and see what happens in other states? Um, I guess we'll be watching. <laughs> do you know when the next conference is? It is tomorrow. We're recording here on uh, Thursday. Um, not all of these cases are going to be discussed in tomorrow's conferences, but um, we're certainly going to be paying attention on Monday as the court releases its orders list. Um, I, for one, will be crossing my finger, hoping that there will be no midnight <laughs> this major decisions handed down um, on Friday. Um, I'll be hoping that for you too, Jimmy. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> but I think we pretty much, we've covered a lot of ground um, in this episode. So we did, we, just... we did. But, but there's like the some biggest fun news, news this week. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. So Justice Breyer is going to be taking part in a Shakespeare Company mock trial. And isn't that like just the most fun thing ever? It's the most Justice Breyer thing ever, I think, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, so it's a mock trial, virtual, March eleventh. Um, basically, it's it's a take on like Shakespeare's Winter's Tale, and Justice Breyer is going to be presiding over a panel of judges uh, who are basically going to be playing out a dispute from a Winter's Tale. This sounds interesting. It also sounds like the perfect platform through which Justice Breyer can spin one of his like outrageous hypothetical questions to one of the advocates we can only hope right <laughs> definitely <laughs> well i'll certainly be looking out for that one uh, including the opinion when whenever that comes down 
Well, on that note, Jimmy, I think uh, this has been a fun and informative episode, if I do say so myself. Absolutely. Thanks, Natalie. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our contributing reporters this week, Juan Carlos Rodriguez and Morgan Conley. Music for the show comes from Slenderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search law360 in the term. Thanks for listening. And oh, please write us a review. 